Welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. This week, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me today is a special guest, my friend John Saylor. Hi there. Yeah, so today we are diving back into the realm of Star Wars, hence Rob's absence because he still hasn't watched the movies, and we are reviewing the upcoming Star Wars Insider Fiction Collection Volume 1. If you want more access to episodes like this, covering short fiction and novellas, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. But for now, let's dive right in and talk about what exactly this collection is. And what it is, is, uh, is pretty freaking cool. Do you agree? Yeah, so the way you explained this to me was... It's a collection of the short fiction that appears in the Star Wars Insider magazine, um, which I remember kind of being one of my introductory um, pieces of media to Star Wars when I was very young, um, because when I was seven, you know, they have those scholastic book fairs and school and whatnot, and I remember getting involved with um, with the young reader, Star Wars stuff, and Star Wars Insider was, you know, obviously something they promoted. Um, so, I, so I remember the magazine, but I'm sure I stopped subscribing to it, you know, when I was still very young, probably in the in the 90s. But um, th- this anthology, I guess, how would you describe it? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it takes all these short stories that otherwise you know, you wouldn't really be able to find in print media um, and just puts them all in one place for for people who, you know, haven't subscribed to the magazine or just looking for for some more Star Wars sort of short fiction type stuff. Yeah, and and funnily enough, that fits me pretty well because as, as much as I was a huge Expanded Universe fan, reader, you know, I played a lot of the games back in the day, I personally never subscribed to Star Wars Insider, and so all of these stories were new for me. I had vague um, knowledge of a couple of them, uh, but mostly that was purely because of the writers themselves, you know, looking up, oh, what else has Timothy Zahn written? Right. What else has Matthew Stover written? Oh, they wrote these short stories. And then, and then I'm like, oh, they're in these super obscure magazine, mm-hmm. you know, Star Wars Insider issue 138. And I'm like, well, I'm never going to, you know. Yeah. Uh, so you feel like you're missing out on a portion of, you know, some of your favorite author's work. Yeah, yeah. And so this was a, I mean, just a great idea, uh, to be honest, collecting some of the kind of the most popular authors over time, some of the fiction they've written for this relatively obscure magazine, uh, or, or if not obscure, at least uh, inaccessible. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and there is a kind of a key component to it. Because Star Wars Insider has been so, um, it's been in, in print for so long, it's done so many issues, this collection spans both Legends old expanded universe and new Disney canon stories. Yeah. That that was actually one of the most interesting things for me as as I got through this is the um <clears throat> I had to reference a lot of Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when I was reading these not only for referencing like characters and places um but referencing the stories themselves like I wanted to see when they came out like what the context as far as like the broader 
um, you know, Star Wars marketing was at the time. So the first story in here starts in 2011, or came out in 2011. So before the whole Disney, you know, buyout even took place. And then the last one um, came out in 2016. So pretty decent um, span of time in there. And something that changed completely from like, Ah, uh, what was it? The last Del Rey stuff where you had like Fate of the Jedi, which yeah. I haven't even read most of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some other random works that were unfamiliar to me. I had to look up characters, you know, honestly, to even understand some of these stories. And then it goes all the way through the new um, the, the new Disney canon where big events like the Battle of Jakku are referenced or characters in, in other video games, other books um, and works like that. Yeah, yeah, like Sloan or right. Snap yeah. Wexley or yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, even as a I guess more old fashioned, old school Star Wars fanatic, um yeah, I had to do a lot of referencing during this this uh this book. Yeah, I certainly did as well. Um and and that was actually to dig into writing style and kind of the overall perspective on this one of the things that bothered me with a few of these stories was how um how much of an info dump there was at the beginning of a few where you just got bombarded with names and titles it's like okay i don't know who this main character is why am i gonna care about all of this like like to me as a writer um, you know, that, that sort of overwhelming lore dump is not a good idea. Uh, especially, you know, this is something... Yeah, a lot of these stories were written for Star Wars Insider. Fans are going to be... Or the, the people who are going to be reading it in that original format are hardcore fans. They're probably going to know a lot of these characters already. But not all of them. Some of these characters, as, as far as I can tell, are entirely new um and and our new situations which is exciting you know that's that's something that i personally love about star wars and the expanded universe is how potentially rich how fertile that ground is for telling new stories that's a conversation for another time (laughs) but uh but it feels like in some of those stories especially um uh (laughs) To single out a, a writer, Christy Golden, <laughs> uh, a couple of her stories started with this just avalanche of names. And I'm like, look, this story is six pages long. I'm, uh, I, I don't care. Like, I don't, I'm not going to remember all of these names that you're throwing at me in the first three paragraphs. Yeah. And, and there's no way all nine of these characters are going to be important in a six page short story. And so I was immediately turned off by things like that. That's not the case with all of them, though. And some of them do effectively, really effectively work as self-contained short stories. Some of them get a little too referential. Like, they play in the, oh, this is this character's backstory sandbox a little too much for my taste. But overall, this collection has a, a remarkable range across these different types of short stories. I... Yeah, so I think um, 
like maybe it's a little ham-fisted, but I, I can separate pretty much every story in this book into one of three groups. There's the stories that work well on their own merit as short fiction. Um, the second group would be those that work well if you have the background knowledge to appreciate what's going on with the characters. And the third group, unfortunately, is just those that don't work really well <laughs> yeah. as either. Yeah, that that pretty much tracks with my um, my evaluation as well. Uh, and I will add to it, um, just in like the sort of the nitty gritty, we are reading an advanced review copy of this book. You know, uh, an e arc with these giant, you know, watermarks plastered over the pages. Uh, so it's not in final form, but I assume, especially because all of these stories have been published before, that there isn't going to be m much, if any, real editing to them. Right. But I really hope, really hope, that there's at least a line edit to hmm. this before it goes to the printer because uh, some, of the, some of the stories are really rough, grammatically, punctuation-wise. Um, yeah. In inconsistencies in capitalization or italicization. I know in the in the first Blade Squadron story, uh, the Star Destroyer Devastator. You know, Darth Vader's Star Destroyer from the very first movie plays a pivotal role. About two pages into the story, they stop italicizing the name of the Star Destroyer. I'm like, what's going on here? You know, is this a formatting issue? Was this a a uh, a relic from the original publication, and they're gonna fix it? I hope they do. Yeah, you know, is it something? Was it just a problem with my PDF file? Like, you know, so well, and and with these stories, um, I mean that this is a, a positive, but of course. Um, when you pick this up, it includes the original art from the magazine that these stories were printed with. And the art is uniformly fantastic. Yes. Oh my gosh. I, I had a, a, a couple of notes on this. Um, for some of the stories, you know, the art was, it was nice. It, it accompanied all of the stories well. But there were a couple of stories where it really stood out. Uh, the Guns of Kelrodo I... The Jason Fry one. Yeah. Vivid art. The the style, the the bright reds mm -hmm. and, and negative color, the, the white space used on it. Really, really good. And then uh, Reputation, the, oh, the yeah. Cad Bane story. Yes. I was also really impressed by the artwork mm -hmm. in that. It was, um, it, more than any other story, I think the art in that one added to it because... There would be certain scenes that you get a little, a little bit of a description of what happens, but not much, and then you get a, a massive, art set piece showing you mm -hmm. what's going down in that situation. Most of the stories, you know, it's like it, it's just sort of flavor. It's not actually showing word for word or elaborating on the word for word description. Right. And so I loved that. For those uh, those stories, especially, yeah, and the art style does change. I mean, you have mm -hmm. um, you have some that look more like a comic, 
Um, you have this artwork here for the Timothy Zahn one that's more watercolor, like maybe a bit more even 90s feeling, which, you know, um, is consistent with what most people think of when they think Timothy's on Star Wars. Absolutely. Um, and then some, like these, uh, uh, I forget the name of the story off the top of my head, but the, the oh. Shadows of the Empire time. And Lebo makes three. Yeah, with the with the uh, um, Dash Rendar storyline. Um, it captures that art style that they used on like those really obscure, really old Shadows of the Empire trading cards. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, back from when that multimedia project was was taking off and i know that you know here on your podcast you guys have already gotten into that so yeah yeah a little bit i won't um, spare too much on shadows of the empire oh, <laughs> those were some fun episodes if you uh if you haven't listened to them already you should definitely go check out our bonus episode on shadows of the empire as well as the accompanying episode uh we did kind of a partner you know back-to-back thing with the legendarium podcast so check those out for some fun star wars discussion but uh, but let's go into the individual stories. Yeah. Um, there are 19 stories in this collection, and 13 of them are old Expanded Universe legends. Right. Del Rey, pre-Disney. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, yeah, six new canon Disney stories, four of which sort of um, play together in an extended narrative. Uh, they're... It's really hard to call them short stories. They're more like chapters in a novella. Yeah, that's a good way to describe um, or it. Or a novelette, maybe. I, I don't know what the actual word count is. Altogether, it was probably 30 or 40 pages. Um, and and it's interesting how they, they laid out the, uh, the stories. Because... It's not in chronological order, which is what I assumed it was going to be, because the uh, the first story, Vader Adrift, started with a a relatively early timeline, like between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back. I yeah, and that's that one was kind of fun for me, just because I recognized um, the subject matter from a really old Marvel comic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it might actually be, I could be wrong on this, I think it might be a between Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. Oh, oh, is it after um, Empire? I, I will check right now and verify okay. for you, but... Yeah, um, yeah, but then it jumps to First Blood, which is in a totally different part of the timeline, and then it goes to Buyer's Market, which is again, like, in, in the height of the, like, Bantam era um, expanded universe, like, Lando and his... Every one of his it's, crazy venture capital, like, you know. Leads right into where he's at in Heir to the Empire. So that, that yeah. one was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And then and then we jump all the way back to And Lebo Makes Three, which is Shadows of the Empire, you know, right between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Yeah. It and, jumps all uh, over the place. Yeah. And so I was, I was really interested by that. And it's like... I, I, so from what I understand, they're in chronological order based on issue um i think so because well i like i said i was going through and looking at what year each one was produced Mm -hmm. and they do go at least in chronological order that way yeah 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 so i find it interesting that they went by like the real world 
historical chronological order instead yeah. of arraying these in any sort of narrative um uh like sequential or or i mean it would have even been interesting having you know the disney canon and the legends canon kind of interspersed in a chronological order there but it was like no we're we're just going to we're going to do it the way these were published and did you so i i don't know, i'm i'm curious did you feel like that worked for you did you want more of a a cohesive structure to so it? So it, it worked for me just because, like, I, I got back into Star Wars, like, in high school. Like, yeah. like you remember. You were there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is when we became friends. Right. So, <laughs> so I was there for, I mean, that was like the New Jedi Order books had already been completed. We, you know, we read those. Um Still haven't finished that series. Yeah, but. I think I think a Legacy of the Force had just started. Yeah. There were maybe a couple of books in. Legacy of the Force, yeah, that started like 2007, I want to say like later high school for us. Yeah. So I remember reading those as they came out. Um, and then I remember in 2012 when the Disney buyout happened. And there was this question of like, well, do the old stories continue? Does everything just get reset? Um and obviously, it's closer to a reset, and yet at the same time, there's still a bit of a mix. Like, Clone yeah. Wars was already a thing, mm -hmm. and Clone Wars was mostly completed by that point. Um, and that has been entirely encapsulated into Disney canon. Um, so so the fact that these are, like, published, or at least set up in, the, in this book in publishing order, works for me, because I remember being around for those transitions i think if a casual star wars fan came into this they'd be pretty lost which is something that is both kind of like a pro and a con for me with this book like like as a star wars fan who spent a lot of time with the universe i like this book i like its mission i like what it's trying to do um and i understand where each story fits not only in publishing order but like in universe i i like i immediately get this one right. is disney canon this one is old canon um whereas if someone was just like i like star wars and i want to read you know this this book of short fiction i think it's going to be a lot harder for them to to grasp it yeah that's that's kind of where i'm at as well where i feel like they chose this layout because they wanted it to be this historical representation of what Star Wars expanded universe fiction has been like for for new readers for or more casual readers but at the same time they're they're in such a disparate array of locations and timelines and characters it's going to be overwhelming for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like I said, some of the stories, it was even overwhelming for me. Somebody who's been reading Star Wars Expanded Universe fiction since I was nine. You know? Like, yeah. And, uh, and it just, uh, it, it kind of makes me wonder um, what the real goal of this is. And I don't think that's necessarily like, 
oh, I'm just going to condemn this. This is a bad idea. They failed with what they're doing. Uh, but I do wonder how much traction this will get in a more casual fan base or a newer fan base. Sure. Um, I I think, you know, just just guessing what their mission with this was, was let's take all this short fiction from the magazine, stick it in a book so that it's available to people. And that's great. Like, like I'm happy about that. Um, which is also why I, I don't think a casual fan is the market for this. Okay, so you don't anyways. think it's it's a, the audience they thought was what, the casual fan? I, I think they're... It's kind of like some of the older EU stuff that they've decided to put back into print, which is great. Um, like, without getting into... Too much of the Disney versus old expanded yeah, universe. Yeah, I just saw they they are uh, doing new covers and reprinting like uh, Shatterpoint yeah. and um, Heir to the Empire, Dark and, Empire comics. You can probably yeah. go get at Barnes and Noble right now. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're doing a great job keeping the you know Legends line of stories as they term it alive. Um, so I think with them putting out this book, they're not thinking a casual Star Wars fan is really going to go for this. Now, someone might, but I do think that their intended market for this is for people who are already familiar with the universe. Interesting. Okay, yeah, because going in, that was not what I expected it to be. Mm -hmm. Like, I totally thought this was going to be like, oh... Let's open up some of this older, hardcore stuff, make it more accessible for new fans. And then as I was reading through it, I was like, I don't know if if that's what they're going for. I don't know if it's going to be successful. And and I guess we'll see. But uh, but yeah, well, let's let's move into some of the individual stories now. So we're. You know, we, we kick things off with, you know, as I said, uh, Vader Adrift. And the story was, was interesting. Um, I think I was expecting it to be um, kind of on the lower end. As far as, like, how you rank it? Yeah, and it ended up being um, much more toward the middle, maybe maybe in the upper half. I'd say the same for me. Yeah, there were like I thought there was some some pretty nice character work, uh, good good emotional kind of landing, mm-hmm. you know, with the clone and and this connection with Vader, uh, and in fact this is something that carried through that I thought they did well was um, giving Vader in uh, like in particular some depth, and uh, in even though. These writers are very much hamstrung anytime they're writing a story about Darth Vader because yeah. all of the massive movement in his character arc, that all happens in the movies. That's done. George Lucas, that's his domain. But they managed to make him a little a little more complex in, in some of these stories, and, and Vader Adrift was one of those. I did kind of disagree, or not disagree, it just bothered me with the... The way the story was framed, where it it hopped points of view without mm. um, transitioning, 
uh, you know, without page breaks or anything. Yeah, it was a bit abrupt. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it was a little awkward. Uh, un- unfortunately, that was a sign of things to come in in this uh, uh, <laughs> in in this collection. But overall, I, I don't know. It was it was pretty good. Yeah, let's. Um, I'll just consult my notes on it here. Um, I immediately thought it was cool that it's a story referencing an event in a comic that came out in like 1981. I haven't read those comics. I'm kind of familiar with the broad outline of them because that's where a lot of old expanded universe source material mm-hmm. comes from. But I, I just thought it was a cool idea. Um, just that nostalgia play. Other things I liked were having the, um, the more junior stormtrooper talking to one that served as a clone which I know isn't really a thing in new canon. Like now the clones have aged out like before the original trilogy even starts. But it, but in old EU, it yep. was like you, you would have prequel era clones serving as stormtroopers alongside, you know, newer clones or newer individuals. Right. So I thought that was kind of a, <clears throat> a cool little dynamic. Um, and, and it's fun seeing Vader from the perspective of, I guess just line troops because usually you're seeing him as like the big bad from the hero's perspective or if you get like maybe an imperial officer perspective like he's the one everyone's afraid of Mm -hmm. so it's kind of fun just seeing um him in the context of like these just average everyday stormtroopers yeah i did like that uh it's it's easy for stories to treat him as uh how do I put it? Like easy to treat him as mythical. Yeah. And this humanizes him. You know, it brings it down to you know the the black company level. You know, this is for for anybody who's read the first book. This is like Soul Catcher getting down off her horse and and dragging the wagons through the mud with the rest of the company. You know, the, this supremely powerful mythical being coming down and engaging with the grunts and i think if there's any disney publishing executive by chance listening to this there's (laughs) there's ample ground for like a bad company approach uh to the star wars universe where you're dealing with um you know just sort of everyday military personnel I mean, maybe I'm a bit biased from my own background. Sure. I just, I, I would read the heck out of something like that. Hey, look, I would as well. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons that, to me, the X-Wing books are close to, if not the peak of Star Wars expanding universe fiction. I mean, I, yeah, I, I reread the Race Squadron books relatively recently uh and we've covered all three of them on the podcast uh you know my wife and i uh read through them as she was starting into the expanded universe for the first time herself yeah and man those those books hold up they're very very good and it's in large part because they explore that more frontline human uh, engagement with the sort of war that we have going on in Star Wars canon. It's 
and and that's been I mean I kind of alluded to this at the beginning of the episode that's been one of my biggest gripes with Disney's approach is that everything still gets tied back to the same group of Jedi yeah. everything has to be about the the mythical level force users it's like no there is this massive untapped galaxy this playground to create new stories in and it, it feels like they're unwilling to do that as if they they don't trust star wars to be cool without the force mm-hmm. and you know and in and when the mandalorian started, I was like okay you know this there's potential here. And then it just became another, oh, it's actually just about the Jedi and Luke Skywalker. Like, you know. Well, so I, I mean, I have some of my own cynicism about that. I, I think I think with like Mando next season, we'll, we'll see it going away from that again. Just I they, hope so. I, Mando season two, which I'm not knocking for quality by staying this. I think it kind of acted as a launching pad for some of these other shows that they've announced now like yeah. the ahsoka show um okay. rangers of the new republic they're doing rogue squadron yeah they're doing a rogue squadron <laughs> movie we'll get to that we'll get to pilot stuff later yeah yeah <laughs> um but anyways just i i think internet opinion isn't always the best arbiter of market success mm-hmm. however you see a lot of love out there on fan groups and reddit on facebook whatever um just for things that have kind of a more gritty even hard sci-fi approach to star wars well i think what it comes down to is that star wars fans got into star wars and yes i'm painting with a broad brush here but people got into star wars because of the uh you know the universal appeal of the hero's journey and the the wondrous nature of oh my gosh not just spaceships and lasers and battles but also magic and jedi and you know cool the the cool factor and and you you get over that at a certain point yeah like it stays cool but it grows stale and eventually you want characters that you can identify with you want characters that feel like you can step into their shoes yeah if if one day a fleet of imperial star destroyers showed up over earth and (laughs) and and we found out oh well we're part of the galactic empire now what would you be in that world and look you're not gonna randomly find out oh actually i'm you know obi-wan kenobi's grandson or i'm i'm uh, (laughs) the the long lost descendant of emperor palpatine like You'd be just another person, and you want to be able to feel like you can be heroic. You can forge your own way and matter in this wide-open galaxy. And so, writing characters who do matter like that means something. Yeah, and bringing it back to these stories, some of these stories actually do a very good job at exactly that. Yeah, they do. They really do. And and I kind of want to skip over a couple of stories just briefly. That's, that's fine. So we can touch on this. Um, a fair trade. A fair trade. Let me... It was it, it was right okay. after uh, And Lebo Makes Three. It's, yep. it's about, you know, some no-name smuggler 
Oh, you know, merchant. Can I add a quick note about this one? Sure. Um, another editing thing. Oh. It's noted as being by Christy Golden. When I looked it up, it was stated as being by Paul S. Kemp, which makes sense because this story involves characters from the Cross Current and Riptide books, which he wrote. Okay, this makes so much more sense for me yeah. because the first the first note I made on this story uh, was that the writing and the stakes are much improved over First Blood, the first uh, Christy Golden well, story. It's a different author. <laughs> so uh, however, I did say there is still there's still that point of view jump issue. A lot of these have that issue. Yeah, yeah. But but again, this is this is a situation of some random guy in the big old galaxy dealing with his super personal doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of Star Wars. Just like he's having a bad day with the guy that he hates and who hates him and he's got to figure out how to deal with it. Which was great. Yeah. Yeah. I had fun with that I story. I really enjoyed this this little one, yeah. Um, did you want to go through the stories kind of sequentially however briefly or if there were things we wanted to expand upon in each one uh we don't have to touch on all of them because some of them <coughs> first blood um i really did not like that's fair we can uh, skip first blood yeah i assume you you felt similar i well <laughs> we'll just get this out of the way it 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 talks about uh what's her name vestara yeah vestara kai character from the fate of the jedi series which mm. i still haven't read um she comes to terms with being a Sith and killing people. It was creepy, and I, I guess it was fine. I, I, I wasn't invested in in really any part of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I will just say that story was unsatisfying and way too referential to yeah, Fate okay. of the Jedi yeah. to really work. Yep, I had no idea what was going on. As a short on. story. Uh, so, Buyer's Market, though. So this is our Timothy Oh, that was Zion a good story. one. Yeah, big uh, One of the, you know, the, the primo headline stories. Uh, obviously, they know marketing this collection that there are certain names. You put are, on the cover. Yeah, Short yeah. fiction by... Yeah. yeah. You, and and in, in the Star Wars Legends, those names, the big names that are always going to draw readers to you. Headlining, Timothy Zahn, Michael A. Stackpole, Matthew Stover, Aaron Alston, James Lucina. That's your your upper echelon of writers that fans of the expanded universe are the, the traditional yeah expanded universe yeah the legends yeah because um, there's a few new authors I. Mm-hmm. I yeah. keep an eye out for, uh, but but so when when you see this cover and Timothy Zahn's name is on it, your expectations skyrocket. You're like, yes. okay, this is the guy who made Thrawn. This is the guy who created Mara Jade, who created Talon Card, Gilad Paleon. You know, he saved Star Wars in the early '90s. Well, he really did. Yeah, '91 I think is when that book came yeah. out. Yeah, and so. It's it's kind of tough to pull those expectations of who Timothy Zahn is and what he means to Star Wars away from reading 
short story in <laughs> a relatively obscure fiction collection. Yeah. That said, it was still fun. It was still it, good. It was very fun. Um, yeah, for, for anyone that's familiar with the material, it's kind of a background story of how Lando gets um, the parts of the Imperial Walkers... <laughs> That make up his, uh, his mining operation. Mining. <laughs> yeah, the the lava mining thing on Nicklon and yep. um, an heir to the Empire. Like it's very random. Um, if it wasn't Lando, it would be like very much one of those little small scale mm-hmm. stories. Um, but it it flows well. It's well written. It was immediately apparent the difference in quality between this story and like the, when I was reading this book. Because I knocked out about a third of it in the first night. This was when I sat back, took a deep breath, and I was like, okay, this is what I'm here for. It's it's not huge. It's not epic. It's just, it's well-crafted. It's fun. It's it's charming. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what I like about, I mean, Lando, the character himself, but also Timothy Zahn's writing. It feels like Star Wars. Yes. Uh, that was... Just like you, you know, I I read probably the first five stories in in the first sitting, and I was getting worried after the second. Where where the first one, I was like, this is this is okay, but it's not great. And uh, and then I read the second, I was like, I don't think this is very good at all. (laughs) And I'm like, oh boy. And then I, you know, I scroll down. You know, I'm reading on a PDF on my computer, so I scroll down and I see Timothy's on. I'm like, okay, yeah, deep breath. You, I trust the hands I'm in, and and they did not let me down. I mean, I the the first note I I had was just this is clean, smooth writing. Mm-hmm. There weren't the issues with awkward point of view jumps. Uh, there there wasn't any problem with character voice or or feeling a, a, a letdown on stakes in part because. It's Lando. I I can go into the story not feeling like I need to have high stakes. I know Lando. I already know his story. You know, and maybe that's going to be a difference for somebody who's a new Star Wars reader going into this. But at the same time, it's fun. There are well-defined stakes to the story. There's a there's a satisfying arc for him. There's a good conclusion. There's a nice little mystery in there. Like it was just an expertly crafted story. And, and that, yeah, it has Lando, um, at least as his character was treated in Bantam and Del Rey fiction, doing what Lando does. And that's a get-rich-quick scheme yep. that fails over and over. Um, it's, it's just a lot of fun. And it, it, most of all, it fits the character as you see him in the movies. Yes, and exactly. That's, that's, you don't feel like you're reading some random character with the mental image of a character from the movies. It's the same character. It's consistent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so let's move on to And Lebo Makes Three. Yeah, because, that was another fun one. Yeah, it was a fun one. I I had a little more of an issue with it in that, like um, First Blood, it was very referential. It was very dependent on, like... This story means nothing, yeah. Unless you've played or read Shadows of the Empire, yeah. You have no idea who these guys are, yeah. If and you don't have that. and Lando, it's like the Lando story. Even if you haven't 
seen the Star Wars movies, you can still step into that being like, okay, I know this character has goals. And finish the story and be like, okay, yeah, like, there, there was a, a clear... A clear goal, a clear conflict, there was a mystery, the mystery was resolved, boom. That was a satisfying short story. This story leans a little more heavily on prior knowledge. Definitely. However, once again, pretty smooth writing, casual voice, which Mm -hmm. I thought really fits, you know, a Dash story. (laughs) There was one line I really enjoyed in this. Uh (laughs) Just the one. Um, I think it's talking about Spice, like like an in-universe narcotic but it just says something about it being um making the present more interesting and the future less attainable <laughs> i yeah, thought that yeah, was like that's, yeah that's that kind of like casual just like you know lead back crack a couple jokes right you know so that was really enjoyable and then we've already talked about fair trade um uh, well actually oh do you have to, more just to pause again on that we, we talked about the um Possibly misattributed author. Oh yeah. Um. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully Paul S. Kemp, wherever he is out there, um, gets his in the end. But, um, yeah, this deals with uh, a couple of characters I had never heard about, and I had to look up. They're salvagers. They're trying to get some salvage, naturally. Um, and they have some issues with arrival. It's a fun little story. I thought it made some good use of um. Just the environmental hazards of like vacuum and some good, a little bit of hard sci-fi in there that kind of reminded me just a little bit of the Expanse books that I'm a huge fan oh, of. Oh, interesting. Just See, a tiny bit. I was going to say what it reminded me of was Firefly. Oh. Specifically the final episode with the extravehicular, okay. like, yeah. trickery. Well, and, and Firefly yeah. is noted for being like one of those shows that taps into like the thing that people like about Star Wars. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th- this, um, just for some more background without getting too off topic, um, I've kind of want to re- wanted to read those Paul S. Kemp books because they deal with Jaden Kaur, who's the player character in the Jedi Academy yes. game. I'm probably tickling some nostalgia buttons for some people out there. Um, tickling my nostalgia buttons. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's one of the, the Dark Forces series games. Um, where the, you know, the player is a Jedi who comes in during Luke's Jedi Academy and trains under, uh, Kyle Katarn, a well-established video game character. Really fun game. Let's you play around with, um, different force powers and lightsabers. And I just thought it was cool that some author at some point was able to make a, I think, duology out of the character. Nice. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so let's, let's move on. Yeah. Let's move on to... To our favorite. Yeah, the <laughs> the story. Yes, the story that probably you and I both came here for. Oh my goodness. The Tenebrous Way by Matthew Widring Stover. There's an SAT word. And we, we went through, you know, what? One, two, three, four, five. Five stories up yeah. to this point. Varying... We're, we're about halfway through. Uh, not about a third of the way. A third, okay. Yeah. Um, varying in quality and and going from, you know, at its worst, some, some ham-fisted prose mm-hmm. to at its best, some, some very smooth, casual kind of prose. Now, I'm going to just, just read. 
Yeah, go right ahead. I'm, I'm just going to read the opening paragraphs of The Tenebrous Way. Because, you know, there's, um, there's just a, a, an incredible disparity in quality. It is truly remarkable. Dying, Tenebris observed with mild surprise was turning out to be not only pleasant, but wholly wonderful. Had he ever suspected how much he'd enjoy the process, he wouldn't have wasted all these decades waiting for his foolish apprentice Plagueis to do him in. So, even as he lay gasping around the icy barbs that pierced his lung, Tenebris smiled. Even with the jerking and convulsing in his body's last reflexive rebellion against the fall of eternal night, even as organ systems shut down one by one to maintain the last shreds of light and life between the vast intricacies of his brain, massive beyond even those of other Biths, a people justly legendary for their intellectual prowess, Tenebris found himself particularly enjoying the incremental disappearance of his own midichlorians. His force perception was even more acute than the magnifying powers of his enormous eyes. In the force, he could feel each individual midichlorian wink out and turn, a spreading wave of darkness, like stars eclipsed by the silhouette of an approaching ship. It's it's just on a different level. This guy can write, man. Well, <laughs> and he... So, so we talk about, like, like Zahn. Zahn can write Star Wars. He makes a book feel like Star Wars. Um, Stover has more, I guess, dabbled with Star Wars. He hasn't done anything super recent, but he's done a few very notable things. Yes. He's done the Revenge of the Sith novel that's kind of a poorly kept secret among uh, Star Wars, you know, book fans. Um, He did Shatterpoint with, with Mace Windu as a point of view character. Um, he did Traitor and the New Jedi Order, which I know we're going to get to eventually. Yes, we will be covering <laughs> on the podcast uh, sometime, hopefully hopefully soon. Yeah, I'll, I'll be back for that one, definitely. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then you did Luke Skywalker in the Shadows of Mindor. Yeah, which I've read and you haven't. I have not. Um, yeah, that's, that is an interesting one uh, that I also enjoyed. But I, when I say this about Stover, I, I, I mean this as a compliment. He doesn't write Star Wars that feels like Star Wars. He makes it his own. And for anyone who's read the the Kane books, um, <laughs> it's going to be very familiar. He, like every page, is a deep dive into the character's psyche. And for someone that really loves Star Wars and really loves the universe, it is fascinating. Being able to go into a scene like the... Um, the confrontation between Dooku, yes. oh Anakin, and Obi-Wan in episode <laughs> three. A pretty simple movie scene where Stover takes you into just this incredible, probably 30-page... Oh, yeah it's, yeah, it's like well over a quarter into the book. Yeah. Uh, I've been 
reading aloud. Um, I, I mentioned this on our Race Squadron uh, episodes. I've been reading aloud these Star Wars books to my wife as we've been going through them. And we are in the middle of Revenge of the Sith right now. And she was crying at that scene. Because it... He's so good at, like you said, delving into the psyche of the characters, laying out all of the vast intricacies of what makes these people themselves what makes them do what they do bearing their vulnerabilities their hopes their fears all on the page and it adds this incredible new dimension to what george lucas does with star wars and and to to go back to your um uh your your sort of analogy off the top there where timothy zahn writes books and makes them feel like Star Wars. Matthew Stover writes Star Wars and turns it into literature. Well, we were just talking about how, you know, it, it's important that Star Wars have Star Wars has stories that the average reader can identify with. There's only so many space wizards at a certain point you want to hear those stories about everyday people right um with stover he takes these established mythical characters anakin obi-wan um and he brings their own motive he he just puts their own motivations and their own psychology um on display to the point where the average reader can identify with with their motivations even like dooku in that scene oh my gosh, it, yeah. it, it talks about what dooku <laughs> thinks is going to happen his his hopes um where he sees himself in the galaxy and how that rug is just pulled out from under him um you know when, when palpatine gives anakin yeah. an execution yeah. order but I'm digressing a lot. We're talking about a completely different yeah, yeah. story here. Let's, let, but, but it's hard to talk it's about hard, yeah. the Tenebrous way without talking about the greater context of Stover in Star Wars. Yes. And, and I think this is something he does really well in this story, is that like some of the other uh, stories through this point, it is referential. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's setting up... I think this one is actually included. The setup for the prequel trilogy. Yeah, the, this this one I'm pretty sure came with the Darth Plagueis novel in one of its oh. editions. Yeah. Oh, that'd be um, that's a clutch marketing move, right? Yeah, there. exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so so this is about Darth Tenebris. He's he's a Beth for you know people who don't know what that is off the top of your head. Probably the majority of yeah. Of the audience. Um, that's one of the guys that's playing in the cantina band in yes. A New Hope. So, Figuring yeah. Dan and the modal notes. This is a Sith Lord <laughs> of one of those guys. Yeah. And he is the master of Darth Plagueis, who is the master of Sidious, our beloved Emperor Palpatine. Um, so Tenebris, in a way, um, directly influences everything that happens in the prequel trilogy. Yeah, and uh, and it was just really nice how this story is referential. It's ground laying without relying on 
that knowledge to make it uh, a story. It is, if, if you handed this story to somebody who's never watched Star Wars, they would read it, be fascinated by it, and come out of it being like, what the hell did I just read? Mm-hmm. This is Star Wars? I gotta go watch Star Wars now. Yes. You know, like, oh my goodness, just the 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 compulsion from the written word, it, it, it forces you through the story until this, you know, uh, self-referential final uh, final scene, you know, the 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 cyclical nature where it opens with the same lines as it closes and uh and and that i admit that's probably where my only criticism of this comes in i feel like we needed maybe another paragraph or two to really connect tenebris's uh you know futility and anguish uh, and then assimilation back into this cycle that he's put himself into to really smooth that connection to the final lines and match them to the beginning. I thought that was a little awkward at mm-hmm. the end, but, but man, I can't, I can't say it didn't work. It did. Like he definitely pulls it off. Oh man. Um, yeah, it's a very, um, it's a very esoteric story. I, I don't want to, <laughs> you know, get into the full breakdown as I understood it. Um, but it's interesting how there, there was a couple takeaways I had. How Tenebris and Plagueis, if you read that novel, um, they both see themselves as kind of being above the whole Jedi-Sith conflict. Mm-hmm. They don't, I mean, they are Sith, but they don't... Um, they don't really see themselves as the inheritors of the legacy of, you know, the the bad guys that fight against the Jedi. They think of themselves as, um, they're they're something new. They're I mean, they're the rightful inheritors of the galaxy because of not only how powerful they are, but how wise they are. Yeah, and in this story, Tenebris makes reference to you know like the uh, Darth Bane, the rule of yes. two. He, and... he talks about the, um, he describes the old Sith as dark destiny and witless fantasy against the equally witless Jedi Order. Yes. Yeah, and, and he thinks about how it is time for the rule of two to go away and it's now time for the one Sith. Indeed. And he is the one. And that there's this chosen one who's going to come uh, in the future, but he has set himself up to subsume the chosen one yeah he wants to possess anakin yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) and and of course he he miscalculates despite all of his vaunted foresight and and he ends up becoming stuck in this infinite cycle of existence and memory loss and memory gain and memory loss and and ultimate he's basically in hell (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah um but let's move on to maze run And, and so this is our first uh main character story yes uh this is a han solo and chewbacca story lando's debatable but yeah yeah um yeah so this is a han Han solo chewbacca story um what did you think of this um so for this one 
I liked the references more than I liked the story. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it's it has Han and Chewie, pre pre New Hope. You know, smuggler Han and Chewie. They navigate through the Rishi maze. Um, it references some of Han's time in the academy. Um, it references a really obscure character I like named Adar Talon, mm-hmm. um, who's a Republic early Empire. Um, I guess fighter ace slash instructor who later goes to the rebellion. Um, I enjoyed that. Uh, so yeah, basically Han and Chewie are tricked into delivering a bomb to a rebel cell, and they figure that out and are able to avert disaster. Yeah, and so going into kind of the writing of this story, uh, this was unfortunately kind of a return to the... Clunkiness. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Just, like, trying too hard. Things like, you know, setting the scene on uh, on Tatooine and Mos Eisley at Han Solo's favorite space bar. Yes. It's like, okay. We know it. We know it's a space bar, but I, it, it's a pet peeve. I think I've heard yeah. this mentioned on other Star Wars podcasts. Like, like everything has to be space, space this, this, hyper yeah. that, vibro this. You know, right? And and it's yeah. Like we get it. We know it's a bar. Calling it a space bar in the story, yeah, kind of breaks the fourth and, wall. <laughs> and my biggest problem with it though was that the characters didn't really feel like the characters in what they were like, like in the actual writing of the story, they only felt like the characters because, because the author told us they felt like the characters. And there was one specific point that I, I just kind of put my face in my hand and I was like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Where Han grins at Chewbacca and the line is, the smile that would one day be known across the galaxy. I'm like, dude, come on. <laughs> it, I, yeah, so like this, this story would have worked for me better if I had a better understanding of like where Han and Chewie were as characters when this happened. Yeah, yeah, like it, this story was just pure fan service. Yeah. It, exactly. It, it felt very fan servicey. It's like, oh, here's your favorite characters, Han and Chewie, doing this thing, rather than here's Han and Chewie as actual dynamic characters yes. in the context of this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's move on from that because I really want to talk about the next. Story. Well, the next one is another one that got a star from me. Probably it, my second favorite. Yep. Yeah. Uh, this and the Tenebrous Way were the only two that I starred. Yes, by uh, Jason Fry. Oh my goodness! Wherever he is out there, I love you. Yeah, uh, you you are one of the hmm, the architects of the expanded universe that I love. That so, John loves. Yeah. To, <laughs> to give some more background on that, did Jason Fry. I I don't actually know everything he's written in in the Star Wars universe, but he wrote. Uh, one of those big nonfiction, quote unquote, source books called The Essential Guide to Warfare, which, oh. which dives into the military aspect of Star Wars and, and the, the space navies and the ground troops and the, the stuff that, like I said, I'm biased because of my background, but the stuff I really enjoy. Yeah. Um, and this story uh, gives you background on one of the characters who's mentioned 
in the Essential Guide to Warfare. Um, but it's, it's not someone you ever would have heard of otherwise. So for me, it was fun to hear more about this character's past. Yeah, this, this story, uh, in a very different way from Stover's, uh, it was just like a nerdgasm. Yes. Like, it, it's... But a good nerdgasm. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, the... I don't know if I could even call it fan service, because... It's not... Well, it's than, a very, very specific kind of... Other than, like, me of, and you, yeah. <laughs> and, like... The people who make Thrawn's Revenge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Eckhart's Ladder. And, yeah, like... And Corey's Datapad. Those uh, people. <laughs> like, yeah. It's... it's, But it's not just that. And that's what really set this on on a level... Like, I rated this the same as I did the Tenebris way. Okay. Um, the writing is good. It is. It's, it's not transcendent. No. Like Stover's. No. But it's good. Uh, but in in a different way from what Stover did with interrogating his character's mind and, and things like that, this interrogates the social aspect of the Empire. And it gives us a sympathetic main character who's also a horrible person. Who's a bad guy. <laughs> yeah, like, and, and it, it does in what, eight pages better work than most novels I've read, uh, Star Wars novels, that try to tackle the, like, imperial racism, xenophobia problem. Yeah. The... Like, it's, it's so deftly done because it doesn't, like, try to make a point of it. The point of the story isn't Oh, you got to be a better person and treat the the aliens right, or you're gonna lose. It's like no, they still win, but it's they win because they exploit the aliens, and they don't even realize it. This, yeah, th- this is um. So, we'll actually get to one of these stories later, but it's hard for me to wrap around or wrap my head around how. Disney wants us to view the Empire. Because let's face it, the Empire are space Nazis. Yes. They are the bad guys. No ifs, ands, or buts. Mm. They're the antagonists. There's nothing redeemable about them as an organization. Yes. Um, more recent Imperials, I guess, in the, in the Disney canon, there, there's been, I don't know, there's been some evidence that Disney wants to have like some more identifiable characters. Um, there's there's a character I'll talk about later who yeah. kind of plays to some progressive like political ideas, and I'm, I it just kind of confuses me because like the Empire are the bad guys. They are xenophobic. They are when you look at the Imperial military, especially in the movies, because that's how they're supposed to be. They are uniformly male. They well partially because. I, yeah, I mean, there there are real world reasons yes. for the way the Empire was portrayed in the movies, but there were also really uh, deftly done plot reasons for that 
in the expanded universe, and uh, and and that's I very much something that I feel like the Disney canon empire is missing. Yes, uh, that they got rid of the sexism. They did. Um, to me, that made certain characters uh, in the empire in Legends more compelling because they were women in the empire. Well, I mean, look at like Lara, Isard. Uh, 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 Isard, or mm-hmm. Gera Petafel, yeah. or um, to a lesser extent, Dala. Dala. Yeah. I mean, she's she's got her own like whole yeah. mess of a character arc, but uh, <laughs> uh, but but uh, Gera, Lara, mm-hmm. whatever you, yeah. Kearney Slain, whatever you want to call her, from the race uh, is books. is kind of the, the the prime candidate for that. Where she she was a high ranking imperial officer because she was so good at what she did but she was also only a high-ranking imperial officer because she happened to be attractive and all the guys above her wanted to bang her and she had to like not only navigate that situation but also had to like ultimately deal with the psychological stresses of being a woman in yeah in the imperial infrastructure you know and so uh, tying it back to the guns of Colorado Eye, we have um, a a sort of culminating character here in uh, or that that like I can't even say it bridges, but but it butts up against that delineation between the legends and Disney, where Disney's taken I think the wrong lesson mm-hmm. from the way many expanded universe fans identified with characters like Gilad Paleon. Yeah. Or, you know, Baron Sunterfell or, you know, where they're like, oh, well, we need to make these morally gray, you know, like sympathetic characters and and make that what what's really, you know, the Empire. But Gilad Paleon, when you really dig into it, wasn't a morally gray character. The guy was still a horrible person. He was a person. bad guy. <laughs> we just... <laughs> We just had his points of view, and and this is something I've harped on throughout many of Inking Out Loud's episodes in the Wheel of Time and in the Stormlight Archive. The point of view trap: you, a good author will put you in the point of view of a character and make you sympathetic toward them, even if they're terrible people. Well, and because we... they believe they are right. And so, of course, the author's not going to make you think, oh, this character whose head you're in is wrong and awful. It's like, no. But but being a critical reader is going to make you realize, oh, this is just how this character thinks. This should not be how I think, you know? Yeah. And like, Disney missed that. When you're reading <laughs> Imperials, you're... Like... You're not you're not reading these Imperials where they're talking around you know their mess hall thinking like what sort of evils shall we yeah, do yeah. today <laughs> like like that's not how it works but when you read a character like you know Thrawn or Paleon or Shea Hublin in this short story it's it's like you don't identify with them like you would a buddy you identify with them like you identify with Irvin Rommel you you, <laughs> you respect. Maybe their skill um, or, you know, their competence, but you recognize that they're on the wrong side 
for the wrong reasons. Yeah, and and with Shay especially here, and this is where I think it it fully butts up against that delineation from what Disney's doing with Imperial characters versus what uh, Legends did with some of those characters, and it's it's that he is specifically crafted to be a sympathetic, like a socially sympathetic character. Uh, to an extent where it's like, you know, we we have this opening scene where he's, you know, doing the propaganda machine and everything, and his uh, and his squad mate steps in and is just blatantly racist. Just an awful guy. And and he's like, You don't really believe that one empire poodoo, do you? And and Shay says, Actually I do believe that one empire poodoo. He's like, look, this is this is a real thing, you know. We need yeah. to, we need to, and so like, okay, I can get behind this. And then he turns around, and he's like casually horrible to this alien servant that he has, and all he thinks about with his servant is, wow, he shines my shoes really good, really nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I've, um, well, one of my own things that I really get into is World War II history, um, and Shay or Shay, however you're supposed to pronounce his name. Um, Hublin, he's really a pretty good example of a lot of Nazi aces from World War II. Oh. Where if you read about them, very skilled, very competent, you know. Um, just happened to be in the Luftwaffe, not necessarily hardcore Nazis as far as, um, you know, the racial theories right. and, and all that stuff. But... They're also not doing anything to really stand against that, and they're actively taking part in the war effort that that regime is propagating. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I think he, he he's a great character, and that there's a lot of really good real world parallels for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so this story I just really really enjoyed. I thought there was great use of dramatic irony with his casual racism mm-hmm. uh you know uh, some some fun action sequences it's fun you get one of my favorite ships is it the v9 the uh the alphas uh alphas wow nimbus v yeah the v because there's yeah. multiple v wings yeah yeah Just not the v-wing airspeeder from the old rogue squadron right. 64 game which was also awesome uh, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just fun ships, um, kind of pre-Tie Fighter Empire, you know, not fight against the rebels, but fighting against like these random aliens that they're trying to subjugate. Um, just good, good flavor for the for the universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought there was some snappy dialogue in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Love pilot stuff. Yeah. Oh, uh, that was the other thing that I highlighted actually. The infographic, the fighter slang infographic. Oh yeah, there is that in there. That that took me by surprise, it. but mm-hmm. I really liked it. That was fighter slang. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, yeah, like it was a it was a good use of telling. Yes, in a story where it's like we're not going to stop the narrative to do an info dump in the flow. We're just going to, because we already have a visual layout going in this magazine with all the art and everything, well, we're just going to 
fighter slang yeah. right there. So if, it's like if you're if you haven't read a lot of other you know expanded universe, if you haven't read Aaron Alston, Michael Stackpole, mm-hmm. you haven't read these fighter pilot books. Well, here's all the link. Right. Yeah. If Jason Fry could just go write a pilot series, Ooh. my wallet is ready. Yeah. Yeah. Can we get him as a consultant on the Rogue Squadron movie? <laughs> uh, anyway, let's move on to uh, Hunting the Gorach. Another one I actually liked. So I I liked it as well. Uh, this yeah. was one of the higher rated stories that mm-hmm. I gave. Definitely um, upper half for me. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think I, I had it as the fourth highest rated in, in uh... the... I, I, I don't have a ranking personally. One, but... two, three... Tied for the fourth highest. For okay, me. all right. Yep. Yeah, I, it could be around there for me. I I definitely enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, there I, again needs some editing. There, sure. There's some yeah. some weird things. There was one point that I kind of laughed at at the very beginning where um this hut main character apparently mm-hmm. stepped out of his ship. <laughs> yep. Saw that. Saw that. <laughs> uh, but but I mean, look, super fun action. It's it's a it, it's a big game hunter yeah that's a hut that's the humor to it is, yeah is just <laughs> it's, ridiculous it's so much fun well and i was like imagining in my mind and then you get to this fantastic um like comic style artwork mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. hut in his power armor <laughs> the art was delightful with the, with the bayonet on his blast yeah i <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a simple story. It's a it's a hut, big game hunter going after an elusive uh, wild animal called a gorach, <laughs> and he and he ultimately outsmarts and kills it, and then finds out afterward that it's apparently this like incredible artist. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely some <laughs> some sympathy there in yeah. the end. Um, Great stuff. Lots of fun. Like if. What am I even thinking of? Um, this is a deep dive, but in Mistborn Era 2, Ooh. we have the sort of side stories with Alamancer Jack. Oh, yeah, Where nice. in the middle of a book, yeah. Yeah. you get your Alamancer Jack story. Yeah, um, in, in the broadsheets. Yeah. I, I would love to have a Star Wars book where we just get intermittent... Um, adventures involving Perella the Hutt. Just it, it, it's like it's you, you know Doc Savage pulp. Yes, you know it's it's <laughs> yeah. great. It's another one of those like kind of root what makes Star Wars fun mm-hmm. stories. Yeah. Um, not a lot else to say on it. Just that it was it was a good time. Yeah. So next up we had Getaway, mm-hmm. which is uh, very far forward in the timeline of the Legends. Oh yes. Uh, it is the honeymoon. Of Jaina Solo, mm-hmm. the daughter of Han and Leia, and Jag Fell, oh yeah, uh, the son of good old Baron Sunter Fell, mm-hmm. the brother-in-law of Wedge Antilles, and the greatest non-Darth Vader Imperial fighter pilot ever. Um, mm. and uh, I, I don't know, story is pretty bland. Um, so it was bland, but uh, it's it. It was hard to judge this one objectively. And, and let me say why. So Jag and Jaina um, have a very long history in the 
Del Rey era yes. expanded universe. They meet in the New Jedi Order books. Their relationship develops throughout. They're in the legacy of the Force, and they're in Fate of the Jedi, which is what I think this story probably takes place in or just after. Um, so it's really hard for me to judge this story objectively because I like the characters so much. Yeah, they're they're great characters, but you know the note that I made was that so much character work has already been done with them mm-hmm. that they're just there wasn't really anything that happened in this. No, it was I like mean, it was just another adventure they've gone on, and I've already read so many better adventures from Jaina and Jag that I was just like, eh. yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, they go to an ancient Jedi temple, they get a holocron. They're saved by a hut, which is fun. More, it, it was more, amusing more having hut, that yeah. immediately after. Mm-hmm. Uh. <laughs> well, and one of the old, like, before the whole old EU ended, one of the things that was happening was the huts were becoming more of like a political, and, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, military force, which was kind of funny. Um, so, yeah, they pop up in this. Um, it, it was fine. I, I didn't yeah. dislike it. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I was, I was like... Fairly standard action story. Yeah. It's it's fine. Uh, Next up, though, is Roll of the Dice. Oh, yeah. This was interesting. Another one where I love the characters. (laughs) Yeah. So I actually said this was a nice contrast against the previous story because this is a second generation character who hasn't gotten major screen time in Miri Antilles, Mm -hmm. uh, Wedge Antilles' younger daughter. Correct. And, ah, big, big fan. Yeah. it felt like a race squadron so, type thing to me. Let me just tell you what my final note was. Yeah, go for it. I said this read like an Alston story that wasn't written by Aaron Alston. Yes. I I don't know really anything about Karen Miller. I guess I could look her up on Wikipedia and see what else she's done. Um, yeah, I'd like to hear more from her. Yeah, uh, I, I wish there had been a little more. I, I feel like... It was short. Yeah. I yeah. Bare, bare um, short. <laughs> I, uh, but I, I also said I desperately hope there's the one scene where Wedge is in character and he like bobs a nod. I was like, please, please <laughs> be an homage to uh, the Agamar brothers on Stornall in the first Race Squadron book where, <laughs> when they're like, oh yeah, and bob their heads. That's, <laughs> a, deep, just... that's a deep dive, oh. even for me. Um, Dodd, Nod, and Fod. Well, that it's Wedge and Mindonos and Face. It's it's one of the best. One of their oh, it's teams. so funny. Yeah, they're they're the Agamaran like rednecks on okay. on vacation to find brides. <laughs> well, Aaron Alston really. Oh, I mean, and Michael Stackpole. Like we were talking about how much that series meant to us. Um, he, I think, he passed away in 2014. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is still a couple years before, um, before he passed away. And so I'm not sure where, he, where his standing was with Star Wars publishing was at the time, but I just thought it was really cool to see a story like this. That was a pretty clear homage to what he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was definitely one of my, um, you know, upper, upper, upper tier. tier. Mm-hmm. And the next one reputation yeah was my third favorite okay i think deservedly so uh, another one that the artwork really stood out for mm-hmm. me uh tons of fun 
I, I, I wrote shooty, shooty, stabby, stabby. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I, I really liked that this story never, like, got too big for its breaches. Like, it just... It was very focused. Yeah. Yes. It was, uh, it was referential, but it didn't rely on other things to tell its story for it. Uh, Cad Bane was a compelling main character. As he is in the Clone Wars. This, yeah. I... I could have done with more Clone Wars material in this right. book, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I think this is the only one. Yeah, I thought the writing was was very solid. There was a, a fun little um, revelation throughout it where the author didn't hold your hand but gave you opportunities to figure out that the Jedi yes. wasn't a real Jedi before outright telling you, you know, and uh, you know, just providing clues as it goes on. Just, just yeah, really well constructed story. Yeah, it gives you some background into like, well, so Cad Bane is the Boba Fett of the Clone Wars era. Yes, in universe, he's the yeah. big deal. Um, and this is before he's the big deal mm-hmm. when he's still establishing himself, and and it talks about that how he's trying to establish a reputation, and it, it's really his his expertise, his tactical process is really. Um, really well written in this story, so I liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, and then and then we have Eruption, which is our final Legends story. Yeah, um, based off of the Dawn of the Jedi series, which is completely unknown to me. Yeah, I uh, this was a resounding meh. For yeah, me. as far as quality, um. Yeah, the writing was definitely, I keep using the word clunky, um, it didn't, it did not flow well <laughs> from sentence to sentence, um, it, it took some effort to get through, I didn't hate it, I didn't, I didn't hate what happened, I thought it was a nice little plot, um, I think the Fate of the Jedi series is about, or not Fate, excuse me, Dawn of the Jedi, Dawn of the Jedi series yeah. is about like, Pre Jedi Order Jedi kind of an yes, attempt at the like, Jedi like prequel prequel yeah um so yeah these characters are a complete unknown to me and they all kind of read as stand-ins for me uh huh yeah th- this was another one of the stories where I felt like there were j- there was just an avalanche of names and and titles so and, much and info on. just thrown at you and I was like I don't know and I don't care about this this could have worked for me a lot better with a different style yeah yeah uh if this had been much more character driven with with that ancillary kind of world building around the character arc instead of just thrown at you Mm -hmm. right at the front could have worked a lot better for me if you copy pasted like Anakin and Obi Wan into this story and yeah. made it like a between episode one and two story, it would have worked just as well, and I probably would have liked it more. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Um, but yeah, and then we we move into the Disney era stuff, and we start off with one thousand levels down by you... Alexander Freed, who um, I'm still. So he, he writes the Alphabet Squadron books. Oh, really? Yes. Okay, all right. Um, the first of which I've read and was mostly happy with. That book was like a, like a 7 out of 10 for yeah, me. Yeah, I, I 
to be honest, I did read that book and and I was kind of met on it, but I feel like I need to give it another try. Well, and so there's two more now, the the most recent of which like just came Yeah, out. yeah, yeah. Um and I've been listening to the reviews on Tapcalf, mm-hmm. the Eckhart's Ladder Cordless podcast. Um and they've been very favorable towards those and I really wasn't going to pick them up. Hmm. Like I was kind of like, meh, whatever. Um but since they reviewed those books like very favorably and i trust their opinions because they're old eu fans i'm probably going to check them out if okay. not using audible credits then at least trying to get them from the library nice okay um yeah. so yeah alexander freed is a, clearly an accomplished writer he knows what he's doing i'm not saying he's um as polished as zahn um he's not but i do think he's at a higher level than some of the other newer authors I've read. Uh, yeah, I mean, for sure. Uh, this I thought I thought this was decent. It, was, um, decent, it yeah. was it was in the the upper half of the stories for me. It it wasn't much of a story. It's I would, very I would short. Say. So I don't know if you remember from Alphabet Squadrons, but he kind of has little short vignettes in that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think he handles short fiction well. Yeah, my biggest criticism of this was that there wasn't really any character arc to oh, it. I didn't give like, a flying crap about the characters in this story. Yeah, it, it was, was going like, to be my main criticism. It was just, it was just like, okay, we need to get these these orphans to safety. Yeah, uh, it was very much an external conflict, mm-hmm. and there was no internal conflict. the The characters were flat; they were yes. they did not change at all. Um, but you know, it, it's sympathetic. They're they're orphans. You got to be like, oh, the empire is evil. You know, but kind of on the nose with that. Yeah, um, uh, there there were there were a couple of points where I was like, uh, I didn't I didn't fully get on board with his wording. There was one line when uh, when she's confronting the stormtrooper, mm. and and she thinks to her surprise she felt calm, almost giddy, and I'm like. Calm and giddy are very different things. Very different things. <laughs> uh, you know, so there were there were some little little things like that where I was like, mm. I can imagine being stressed to the point of being giddy. Yeah, uh, really but but overall, you know, it was it was decent. It was serviceable. I I just think, um, well, let's see. This was written. This was written in 2014. That was before wow. his first... That was before the original Alphabet Squadron novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's clearly growing. Yeah. I just think he's one to watch. Okay, yeah, that's that's good to know. I I, uh, I was just talking with one of my Twitter uh, mutuals the other day. Who's He's not only a, a book reviewer, but also a hockey fan. Mm-hmm. And so we, we chat a good bit. And he just reviewed the uh, in advance review copy of the final alphabet squadron okay or i think it's the final one i think uh, yeah it's supposed to be um, a and and he was like yeah no you need to give it another shot so and that's yeah that, that that's what i'm hearing um that it's on on the tap calf episode because i just listened to that review they were saying that it's it would be in the upper tier of the old x-wing mm. books mm. so high praise high praise indeed we'll see and now we move on to orientation which uh, again, pretty, pretty referential, but I don't mm-hmm. mind it. Um, no, not at all. Uh, it, it works it, without having the background. Yeah, knowledge. I, I, 
it's an origin story for Sloane, mm-hmm. but it's not about Sloane, and I think that's why it works. It's, it's about, a Vader story. It's about Vader, and it's about Balo. Yeah, Balo. Yeah, who's a who's mm-hmm. a fun little character, a little weasel. Yeah, um, yeah. I thought th- this one really had a good flavor for me. It fit in the universe because um, so Balo he operates this private like military like space academy on an old cruiser yeah i'm gonna call it a dreadnought in my head canon um but he you know he's existed and had this school you know before the clone wars during the clone wars and now into the empire as it's taking shape and so through his eyes you see this transition from like the the demilitarized galaxy to you know the chaos of the clone wars to the fascist everything is nationalized right you know imperial model um and i thought it was cool to have a character with that kind of age and experience that is seeing these transitions right like he's he's not a sympathetic character like no. the guy's a jerk he's a jerk but also he's he's at least on a baseline like morally sound where he's like yeah i'm i'm like a, a jackass to the yes. people that i'm training but it's because i think this is what's going to bring out the best in them i'm not a jackass to them because i'm an evil person who's going to get in line with like enslaving half the galaxy and <laughs> and becoming well, a space nazi th- that was you almost know? a twist for me because like i was reading the character and i thought to myself if i met this guy in deck school I would have thought he was a chode, which is the whole point. Like, he's supposed to be, like, an asshole. But as the story takes shape, you, you start to realize that he's kind of trying to protect his own private hegemony from the real, tangible evil that the Empire yeah, represents. He's, he's ultimately trying to teach these people to be the best individuals they can be and not become robots yeah yeah i think that's even mentioned yeah i I, like brainwashed drones or something like that something like that and so so yeah i i liked that one a a good amount yep it's definitely upper half um trying to see if i have any more notes on here sloan is an interesting character for me kind of as we discussed Mm -hmm. earlier um I think she was a creation of Chuck Wendig. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, one of those first sequel era novels. Um, Aftermath. Yeah, and I, I've read her in... I haven't read those, honestly. Um, I have read her in uh, one of the, the anthology point of view book for Empire Strikes oh, Back. Oh, yeah, yeah, she From pops a certain up, point of view. Yeah. She pops up in the Empire Strikes Back one. Uh, fun book by the way Mm -hmm. anyways um yeah it's it's kind of interesting having an imperial character that kind of embodies a lot of progressive qualities right it it doesn't really work for me but she's a fine character Mm -hmm. she works in the story yeah and now we get to our final set of stories yes blade squadron which i was watching your face while you were reading these (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I just finished reading the last couple of stories uh, after after John got here to record. <laughs> we, 
We might have some divergent opinions on this one. Ooh, interesting. I, I for one, am glad that these stories exist. Okay. But we'll get into it. Yeah, and I'm going to have a hard time kind of talking about these as individual stories because they're not. They really are. Short stories. They're, yeah. they're kind of chapters in, in a longer story. Um, kind of happy that this book puts them all in one place. Yes. Oh, I, oh it, it would have failed entirely were they spread out. Yeah, I actually had read the first one. Really? Okay. Um, I don't remember where. But I had read it. Um, it wasn't in the magazine. I think it was online. Okay. Um, and the others were new to me. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so the first story is about a, a pilot, uh, Gina Moonsong, mm-hmm. who is a, a rebel recruit uh, and gets thrown into the action at the Battle of Endor. And then we have a continuation of her story uh, at um, Malastare, Kuat, and Jakku. Over the next three, um, as well as a bit of a you know a, a romance story with Braylon Stram, who yeah. was her trainer. Not the greatest romance story. Not the greatest romance <laughs> story. Uh, in fact, basically not a story. Um, <laughs> and and really, that's where my biggest criticism of this well, second big biggest criticism. We'll get to that later. Uh, comes in is that this is a four part story and there's like no character arc beyond them just getting together which was preordained you you say it's like a four four part series that makes up a novella which i would say is accurate except each of them is written as a standalone short story you would read a magazine like they they don't and they (laughs) none of the individual stories really do anything which is frustrating like well, as far as their characters, no. Yeah, there's like no character development. When I went into this, I was expecting there to be something around um, Moonsong being this like consummate rebel. Like it starts off with her being like, yeah, we screwed up the training mission, but we got the objective done. Right. And, and look at how much like I'm a, like, you know, she's, I, she's I'm edgy. And... from... Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, but then there was <laughs> there was no development no. on that, no. and and that disappointed me. Um, the only development that was there was basically at Death's door in the final story, where she's like, "I don't care what happens if I get through this. I'm telling him how I feel, and and we're gonna be together." Yes, and I was like, um, "I mean." A yeah. college student who gets drunk enough on a bad night probably has that thought occur to them. It wasn't that deep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but my my biggest issue with this was just the 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 constant like breaking of the established rules and lore of starfighter combat. And... So, well, let me. Um... Oh. Here, I'll, I'll let you get into that. Okay, you, 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 go, you go. Just to give a framework. So, Blade Squadron is a squadron of B-Wings. Only it's not a squadron of B-Wings. Well, it's part of a wing. It's <laughs> no, part of a... No, it's a squadron that randomly has like A-Wings and X-Wings thrown in every once in a while. I, I read it as being part of a wing where they change... Well, 
Blade Squadron I thought was just B-Wings. And then, whatever. So... Well, we're going to get there. Military sci-fi, <laughs> though. We'll get into that later. Anyways, <laughs> Squadron of B-Wings. B-Wings are cool. They're kind of an obscure ship you don't really see. Mm-hmm. Um, they are in the movies. However, briefly, they were really hard to animate, so you don't really see them much in Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Big, heavy assaults starfighter designed to take out capital ships. So, in the Battle of Endor, they're given the job of taking out the Devastator. That's the star destroyer that you see in the opening part of a new hope um and then in the next story they attack the planet malastare which is kind of cool because malastare it pops up in a few video games um it's where sebulba it's is where from. sebulba the angry doug that anakin pod races against and phantom has menaces from cool planet um and then they take the co-op drive yards which is a big deal because that's where star destroyers and similar ships are made and then they participate in the Battle of Jakku, which is a big deal in New Canon because that's the point at which the main body of the Empire is broken in one big battle. Yes. Like massive, massive uh, naval battle. Yes. Multiple super star which, destroyers taken I, down, fleet. You know, I, I used yeah. to like... I'm really getting into the weeds here. I, I used to dislike the idea of Jakku because I was like, well, I liked it better in the old expanded universe where there were all these warlords and, and it took forever for like the galaxy to be pacified and never even really truly was. And then I realized as they make more stories in this new canon that they're still doing that. Jakku was just where they broke the main body of the empire. There's still warlords. There's still insurgencies. It's in a different way than the yeah. old expanded universe. Yeah, they basically took in the old legends the like socio-political situation of Endor and moved it to Jakku. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I'm cool with Jakku. I'm. That's one part of new canon. I've been able to mm-hmm. come to terms with and I'm, I, I i like it um but getting back to the whole blade squadron thing right um it might it, it it'll simultaneously make someone who really enjoyed the old x-wing books happy for the fact that there's a short short story even dealing with the subject matter mm-hmm. it, like it'll make you happy to have that but at the same time um it's not at the same level of quality no it's not and and part of i will very much admit part of the problem is that it needed to be longer yeah this story doesn't work as a series of short stories this needs to be like two or three novels Sounds about right. In order to work. It needs to be like Alphabet Squadron. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or Rogue Squadron. Yeah. You know, the, it's... I, I made that note uh, for the Kuat one, where it's it's like a six, five, six-page short story about like a months-long campaign. Right. And, and I'm like, there just isn't room for what you need to do here. And, uh, it, and it, it did not help that this was by far the sloppiest written sequence in the uh, in the entire book. Just riddled, riddled with punctuation <laughs> errors, grammatical errors. Um, 
awkward sentences. Um, awkward dialogue. Uh, super awkward dialogue. I mean, like random. Maybe even worse than the uh, the space bar earlier. Um, the just like jargon. Yeah. Like like there's one point in in the Endor um, point where, it, in fact, when they blow up the Devastator, they shoot and breach the navigational shielding. Like, navigational shielding? <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just... It, it's like the the writer was just so caught up in, in, like, throwing as many spacey, Star Wars-y words at it as possible that, like, all meaning was lost at certain points in the stories. Um, well, like... Because... Oh. The best Star Wars authors, like Star Wars, is not hard sci-fi. No, it's not. it's it's silly. It's fantasy. Yeah. But there's still certain rules that exist for how things work in it. Yes. And when I I'm not saying like there has to be just a complete perfect adherence to the way star wars is supposed to work because there's there's going to be inconsistencies Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but when in these short stories it was more transparent that it was like well this thing is going to happen in the environment because that's the way i need it to work yeah and and that was where i kind of came to it with the kuat story especially where there's like a the entire operation fails or is like put on hold because there are these AT-ATs on a space monorail mm-hmm. on this space platform and in in like all of established Star Wars lore before this AT-ATs were effective at the Battle of Hoth because they were fighting against like under-armored underpowered air speeders but anytime you go up against actual starfighters AT-ATs are worthless. Well, and and now we're we're dealing with a squadron of uh, like assault starfighters, B-wings, just like packed to the gills with weapons, and they're like, well, the only way we can take down these AT-ATs is by using up all our proton torpedoes. It's like, no, <laughs> and like this is manufactured drama that goes directly in the face of previously established star wars lore it's like this is just sloppy writing and and it, it it's not even i'm not even blaming the writers for it i'm blaming the editorial direction where they clearly just got lazy they're like we're gonna ignore what's already come before because it's easier for the story to work this way well and with ATATs, i mean th- th- there's not a lot of consistent I guess, direction on how they're supposed to work. Because the only times we really see them are Hoth when they're... Well, but they're in a lot of books. And we see them fight, like, X-Wings in books. And X-Wings just, like, quad burst of lasers. Boom! I mean, Isar's Revenge. One book. Uh, Also in um, Rogue Squadron. That's a juggernaut. Uh, What? Yeah. The one that gets blown up in Rogue Squadron, that's a juggernaut. No, no, no. Uh, at the at the beginning of Rogue Squadron, before they 
Yeah, we're getting into the weeds here, guys. Sorry uh, about Bear this. with us. Um, when they run into the strike cruiser right after they set up at Talassia, yes, uh, they land on the swamp world where the Imperials had an ATAT, and they blow one up with the X wings. I'll have to go back. Anyways, um, but yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, but but that's that's still like just the beginning of it. I mean, there were things like in in the Jakku story where um, Gina met up with Snap Wexley and. And, you know, they spend their night out out in the sand, and I, I just, like, put my hand in my face again, because she talks about how she, she takes her watch, and then she goes to sleep, and he does his watch, and then she, it was like she skipped her watch. I'm trying to remember the, the actual wording oh, of it, I because it was so dumb. It, like it made like no sense. She, um, like she takes first watch. Okay, M- Moon Song took the first watch while the kids slept, though that was really just a way to make sure he got some rest. Because as soon as he woke, Moon Song skipped her watch and got them on the move and said, "It's like no, you didn't skip your watch. You skipped his watch. Like, do you not know how this works?" <laughs> Skip, skipped her nap. She didn't get a nap. Yeah, like it, it, there's just like weird lack of of general or or basic like military strategy you go back to the the very first story the whole dog fight between the interceptor commander and fox Mm -hmm. and fox has to pull this insane a-wing maneuver to to knock out the interceptor guy even though he's flying an a-wing which has guns can that can go whoop backwards well and like (laughs) it's that's pretty uh-huh. awesome. I mean, there's inconsistency about that, too. And and the A-Wing, that apparently has heavy shields and is taking, like, blast after blast after blast yeah. after the shields have been knocked down. I'm like... A-Wings take, like, one more hit than a TIE fighter. They're A-Wings very... are the most fragile New Republic yes. or Rebel Alliance fighter there is. Like, there are just so many things that are written into these stories that blatantly fly in the face of lore because... They need to happen this way for the story to go the way the authors want. And that annoys the hell out of me. So, if you're a deep lore, Starfighter, Can, can we Star get Wars Jason nerd, Fry to rewrite these four stories with attention to detail? Oh, they'd be fantastic. <laughs> if you're a deep dive Star Wars nerd, these stories might bug you. However, I personally enjoy the subject matter... And I am glad they exist. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, if I could just like read, a, if if I could have just read a Wikipedia summary of these four stories, I would have been like, awesome. Well, I already Sweet. did. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but reading the actual stories, they just weren't executed well. And right. yes, I mean things like. Because the X-Wings are escorting B-Wings, they're not going to give them proton torpedoes? Like, what? Well, and, yeah. I, I don't know. So it's I, I thought so about that weird. one. It was kind of like, well, you know, lack of supplies or whatever. Except but this is, like, deep in the campaign yeah. of the New Republic where they have all the infrastructure now. It's like, no. Yeah, it, I, they didn't even say, oh, we don't have the supplies. We don't have the torpedoes. It's like, no. You're assigned to protect them, therefore you don't need torpedoes. Like they're escorts, so they don't get... Because you still use... Whatever. Anyways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there were a few other things where I was kind of like, 
rolling my eyes, just the whole, you know, subordinate, nurse squadron leader banging secretly, and, mm. you know, the straight out of Battlestar Galactica tropes. <laughs> so the one thing I will say, maybe the best part of the whole Blade Squadron thing is that after I record this episode, I am going to go look up the old webcomic about Arvel Crinid and his wife oh. before so, the Battle of Endor. Sh- shameless plug, if it's still on the internet, um, Google verbatim a Star Wars comic. It's fan-made, it's unofficial, it might have been taken offline. However, they made these very short web comics um, about random Star Wars stuff. Usually things you would recognize, like um, something with Padme or something with like even like Max Rebo, the big blue elephant from, from Jabba's <laughs> yeah, Palace's yeah. band. Anyways, they would do little stories about that, just really small, but they were all tight and emotionally impactful and good. And the Arvel Crinid one, the A-Wing pilot who crashes into the bridge of the Executor at the Battle of Endor and causes it to crash into the Death Star. There's a comic about him and his wife or his girlfriend. Yeah. And it will it's break worth, you. It's, there's no dialogue. It's very, very artsy <laughs> Star it is, Wars. It is like um, one of the most emotionally impactful pieces of Star Wars creation ever. It's great. Yeah. Um, um, and I yeah. got major vibes at the beginning of Blade Squadron, the very From first, that, the Endor one. The, and, the yeah. first Blade Squadron short story, I think, is the best one. Uh, I thought the second one was the best one. Okay. I will say I, I kind of like the whole thing where they took down a portion of the shield at Malastare. It reminded me of the Rogue Squadron game. Yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was um, like one mission in Rogue Squadron 2 where you do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so that brings us to the end of the stories in this and let's just kind of talk about the like how, like how do we feel yeah um so for me this was an opportunity that you offered me i'm not regular i'm not regularly part of your podcast sure <laughs> however i do listen to it a lot because it helps me get through the work day oh heck yeah. um well i should say i listen to it when it's a book i've read or mm-hmm. am reading Recently, I've been listening to your Illuminae Files episodes. Oh, yeah, lots of Because, yeah, I'm like third of the way through Obsidio right now. But anyways, um, being offered the opportunity to read an advanced copy of a Star Wars book. And beyond that, a Star Wars book that is specifically positioned or marketed as a tribute to the legends, the old expanded universe, for me, was really cool. And I've been looking forward to this. And I hope I've been objective enough in my evaluation <laughs> of these stories just because um, it, it was a really cool opportunity to have just to um, just to be honored with reviewing this before it's on the market. Um, well, hey, you know, I, I wouldn't have had it, had it any other way. Uh, you know, we, our, our friendship goes a long way back and and star wars star wars is a big part it has been a big part of it from the beginning i mean a a little anecdote for the listeners uh we we became friends way back in high school uh and we kind of first interacted in a creative writing class 
where we were both finished with our um, uh, our assignments in the computer lab. We happened to be sitting at computers next to each other, and uh, and we happened to both be browsing the same page on Wikipedia, the Viscount class Star Defender, <laughs> and I I like out of the corner of my eye I. I saw his screen and was like, oh, that looks familiar. And I glanced over and was like, oh my God, you're on literally the same page. <laughs> Drew also felt the need to tell this story at my wedding. Yes, I did. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so you know, when when I'm doing some like real like Star Wars lore on this podcast, obviously we don't do a ton of Star Wars. Um, like, I, I knew I had to have John on for this. Like... That that just wasn't an option otherwise. So I'm I'm really glad you were able to do it. Yeah. And uh, and hopefully we didn't savage this book so much that we never get access to another Star Wars arc. Well, uh, <laughs> I I really don't. I don't think we were too hard on it. It's not like this is some fresh yeah. thing they're marketing. Th- that these is are true. old. These are old short stories that that popped up in a magazine. And if anything. I was, a lot of them, I'd say at least a third of the stories in this were a lot better than they had to be. Yeah, uh, and I'm coming off really negative here, largely because this whole thing was ended with this, like, almost hyped up four-part, you know, meta-narrative, and I and I was like, all right, it's, it's titled Blade Squadron. I'm like, okay. I'm a huge fan of the X-Wing books. Mm-hmm. Like, this is this is for me. And it, it didn't live up to my expectations. But that's not to say that the collection as a whole was a failure. Uh, there were a lot of good stories. There's some gems There were some in great this. stories in yeah. this. Uh, there were, you know, but it's always going to be a thing you deal with with a collection or an anthology. You know, you... When, when you have 15 different authors contributing to something there's going to be a mix in quality i mean just look at the new jedi order exactly you you go from some outstanding maybe the single best star wars book ever written in traitor (laughs) to potentially well no i i can't even in good conscience say it's one of the worst because planet of twilight exists uh, yeah. But, uh, but, but one of you know the the lower end books in like Balance Point or something like that, you know, there's there's a wide range of quality when you bring in so many different authors collaborating on uh, uh, a a mega project, and and look, maybe the overall quality on on this fiction collection wasn't as amazing as some other Star Wars collaborations, but it was still good overall. Like, I'm glad I read it. And this is only volume one. Indeed. There's going to be a second volume we discovered. Um, forget when that comes out, but maybe we'll be fortunate enough to review that one as well. Yeah, I am certainly hoping so. Uh, but yeah, and, and on that note, I think it's time to head into the final draft. Yeah. What do we got here? Yeah. So, what is this? Uh, what is this IPA you were this drinking? This IPA that we enjoyed, or I should say, I primarily enjoyed. Yeah. <laughs> um, is from Crooked Stave Brewing, of Arvada. 
uh, I don't even know where they started. Did they start in Fort Collins and I'll, then move to Denver? I'll do or? a quick search on that. It's from the Denver yeah. area. From Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> Crooked Stave is, um, they kind of specialize, I think, in open fermentation, yeah. sour type stuff. Um, okay, so it's in Denver, but they have a Fort Collins tap room, so mm-hmm. there you go. Um, anyways, this is a... An, East Coast IPA from them. Um, had a really nice hop character. Very smooth. Yeah. Not overbearing. Um, you know, some of those milky IPAs, they get a bit harsh. Yeah, yeah. This one wasn't like that at all. It was smooth. I could drink I could drink the whole four-pack and, and probably feel just Ooh. fine. Um, this one is called Glitch in the System. Very nice. Applies to several stories. It's spacey. It's sci-fi. Yeah. We could uh, probably apply it to Illuminate, too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And right. our second beer. Yeah, so we've split uh, a bottle of of this beer because, well, it's... Uh, it's well, a hefty it, boy. Does it even have an ABV on it? Uh, oh, my gosh. I don't know if this has an ABV on it. Betcha it's 13. Oh, yeah, 13%. There you are correct. Um, yeah, so this is a Willet Rye Barrel Aged Imperial Stout from Corporate Ladder Brewing Company in Florida, in uh, Palmetto, Florida. Uh, and it was aged on pecans, coffee, caramel, and vanilla. Uh, it's real good. It's a delightful slice of dessert. Oh my gosh. Um, every time I bring on a barrel aged stout <laughs> on this episode, I feel like I... I give the description and then I stop and go, it's real good. It's real good. <laughs> <laughs> like if you can get your hand on this obscure beer that you really can't get your hand yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. This this very obscure beer that I got uh, via an online sale that sold out in four minutes and had a friend in Florida ship to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, it, it, is, it is quite good. And like Glitch in the System, this one applies to several different stories in this collection. It mm-hmm. is called Exit Strategy. Huh. Yeah. It's a Star Wars trope to be running away from odds that are not <laughs> yeah. in your favor. Yeah, it's that's only happened a I don't know, a couple of times in uh in Star Wars. Not usually several times per movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this has been a bonus episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I don't know what's next up because I'm not exactly sure when this is gonna be coming out. Uh it, it'll probably depend on how our regular schedule goes but it is worth noting that uh, it'll probably be in early may because this collection officially releases on may 4th may the 4th be with you Perfect. so i don't know maybe this will be out on may 4th in fact it'll probably be out on may 4th so does that mean that batch cartoon Ooh. not that they need help yeah right um and, you know, as always, if you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. As always, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my special guest, John Saylor. Nice to meet you guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>